There's an old saying. Um, it, it goes like this. A man told his friend, quote, my wife only has two complaints. Number one, that she has absolutely nothing to wear. And number two, I don't have nearly enough closet space. But in our house, um, that is not my wife. My wife is the king of toss it away. It's me. My closet is completely packed, and I can literally, and I'm not joking, I actually broke a dresser drawer trying to jam the things into it. I, I, and, and here's the amazing part of it. I don't know if any of you guys are like me. I wear like 10 outfits on repeat, but I just have all of the rest. Like literally, I have things I have never worn, but I can't get rid of them. They just stay in the closet. I was thinking about it this week um, as my dresser drawer almost fell onto my toe because it's broken off its track. Why do I keep all of this stuff? Like, why don't I just get rid of it? You know, there's people that could use it. I could donate it. We have a bin right in the church parking lot, right? And so I was thinking about it. And I guess there's two reasons, right? The first is I'm sentimental, so it's, it's hard for me to get rid of things. If Joan wasn't in my life, I could easily be a hoarder. I hate getting rid of things even if they don't make sense anymore. That's why I'm wearing this shirt. Many of you have already come up to me and remarked on this shirt. This is my all-time favorite shirt. I bought it at the old J&R Tobacco like wholesale store that used to be next to J&R Tobacco. They've gotten rid of it. It's a Joseph Abood shirt. I could never afford a Joseph Abood shirt, but there was one in J&R Tobacco and I purchased it. I love this shirt. My wife hates this shirt with a passion. But my wife is in Cleveland this morning. And so this will be our little secret that I wore it. I love it. It's completely out of style. It's got paisleys on it. They'll be back. But it's out of style. It looks ridiculous. But I love it. The other, is, the other reason I can't get rid of half of my clothes is that, well, they only fit me half of the time. It depends on how my gym routine has been going recently. If I've been disciplined, going to the gym regularly, I've been eating right, then I literally have a whole new line of clothes that fit me well, and, it, and they look great. The other 51 weeks a year, I have this other set of clothes that, that you're used to seeing me in, and I wear those until I get back to the gym again. Times change, bodies change, clothes, they don't. Clothes don't lie about your changes. This is, um, some of you know I ran a little track back in the day. So this is my um, sweat top for when I ran track at Rutgers University. I fit in this at one time. Caroline, my daughter Caroline wears it as her good luck charm, and, and it barely fits her. Now, here's the truth. We were going through some stuff, that's how she discovered that, and I had my old Rutgers track singlet in there, and I put that bad boy on. <laughs> I looked like an overstuffed sausage, like coming out of the casing. And there's a picture floating around in the church of this, so I don't think he's here. I know who has it. Some of you know who has it too, but anyway, clothes don't lie, right? Here's the deal, when you, when you put on clothes that don't fit, it can be embarrassing. If I put that singlet back on, if I wore that singlet, and trust me, it crossed my mind, it can be offensive. 
I have a new body, I need new clothes. The old clothes don't fit in anymore. They just don't work for the body that I have. And so here's my point uh, about all of these things. Because they're not just true about clothes. What I want to show you this morning is that they're true of what you believe. They're true about your faith. They're true about Christians, and it's true about Christianity. What I'm going to show you, I, I, I hope in a minute, is actually even where that name came from, Christians. Now, well, when we as Christians, when we don't understand that we are part of a new body, right, but we live like we're part of an old body, it's just like Pastor John putting his Rutgers singlet on. It's sad, it's embarrassing, and, and it can be offensive. I'll go even a step further. In this series that we're in, What Happens Next, what we've been trying to do over these weeks is figure out what happened with the early church, Right? How in just 300 years or so, after Jesus died, there was literally a handful of half-believing disciples. In 300 years, 30 million believers literally overtook the world's greatest empire. How did that happen? Well, what you're going to see this week and next week, what really changed everything was when they changed their clothes. And by clothes, I don't mean they physically changed what they were wearing. I mean they changed what clothed their faith. So here's the deal. It took them a couple of de decades to figure it out. Because originally they had kind of a new body and they were wearing the same old clothes and it didn't fit and it was embarrassing and it was offensive, right? It took them a couple of decades to understand what this new covenant that Jesus spoke about was. But once they did get it, they were willing at great personal cost to change what clothed their faith. And it was this new faith, this new covenant. It was what clothed it, in a sense, that was so compelling that people ran towards it. It overtook the world. But if they had held on to the old clothes of the old covenant, here's what's true. You and I would not be in this room today. Jesus if, if we even knew who, who he, uh, Jesus, if we even knew who he was, what does this say here? Jesus, if we even knew who he was, would be, oh, okay, see, when you miss a comma in your own writing, it could get very confusing. Jesus, even if we knew who he was, right, if we knew who he was 2,000 years later, if they hadn't changed their clothes, Jesus would simply be relegated to history as like a great moral teacher or maybe even just a, a religious rebel rouser. And so if we don't change what clothes our faith, because we're people of a new covenant, we have a new body that we're part of, if we don't do what the early church did, here's the problem. It's not just sad, it's not just embarrassing, and it's not just offensive. It is all of those three things. It's also dangerous. It's why people walk away from the faith. It's why our kids abandon what it is we believe. When we, when we do that, we propagate false religious beliefs that keep people far from God. And when we take those, those things to extremes, people get offended, they get hurt, and they get lost. And so that's the setup for this morning's talk. Now, when we last left our series, right, two pretty cool things had just happened to this early church. First, the church, because of rampant persecution that broke out, had to leave the city of Jerusalem. Jesus has said to them, look, I need you to go and be my witnesses, not here, here in Judea, but then to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But it's likely the disciples just believe that to be hyperbole. 
Because for those first disciples, and this lasted a good 10 uh, 10 years, they understood that Jesus was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. He was the Savior of their people. He was their people's long-promised and prophesied one. And so, yeah, they were witnesses, but even they had to be thinking, well, they must mean to like the scattered Jews in different areas. But as Caiaphas and the temple leaders began to crack down on the early church, right, arrests were happening, some of the Christians were beginning to be killed, that movement was forced to leave into these different cities. And so last week, here's what we saw. Peter winds up at the house of of a Gentile man named Cornelius. And Peter has this unbelievable experience where the same Holy Spirit that had fallen on the disciples, those that had walked with Jesus, falls on Gentiles, which, go back and listen to two weeks ago, was mind-blowing. And then we discovered Saul of Tarsus, right, who was the chief persecutor of the church. He's the reason that they're chased out of Jerusalem. And he meets the the risen Jesus on the road to the city of Damascus, where he's actually going to arrest the believers. And he's profoundly changed from an enemy of the church to the great evangelist of the church. And so now we pick up the story. And, And the story continues with all of the same figures you know, Peter and James and John, along with Saul of Tarsus. And now they're outside of the city of Jerusalem, and they realize that Jesus is not just for their race or their nation, but but he's for the world. Yet, it's still a very Jewish church. They, They, of course, and why wouldn't they? They get now that others are invited in, but they assume the invitation to the world is not an invitation to Jesus. It's an invitation to their culture, to their belief system, in a sense, to their race. You're welcome to follow Jesus, convert to Judaism. He's the Jewish Savior. So if you want to follow Jesus, their message would have been, right, to, to, that you need to adopt all of the cultural rules and the laws and the practices of the Jewish people. I mean, if you wanted to be a follower of Jesus during the first decade of the church, if you heard Peter talk or Paul talk and you were kind of moved and said, I really think Jesus might be the savior of the world, the first thing they would say to you is, you have to get baptized. And 36 of you last week said, sign me up. And then they would have looked and said, and you need to get circumcised. Now imagine if we had a circumcision right after the baptism last week. I'm fairly certain our numbers would have been thinned out. Cut in half, if you might. <laughs> See, I went off script. That's what, always what happens when I... Why? Because if you wanted to have Jesus as your Savior, you needed to be a Jew, and to be a Jew, you needed to be circumcised. I mean, it was just evident to them. And yet, this is crazy, the church is still growing. I'm guessing there was a lot more women and children that were being attracted to the message, but it's still growing. And so back to the story. Here's what Luke writes. He says, then Barnabas, Barnabas was an early convert and a member of the church. He went to Tarsus to look for Saul. This was Saul. That he's Now he's been converted, and and he was once the persecutor of the church. Now he's the evangelist, right? And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Antioch plays a very big role here this week and next week. Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire, and it's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. So Barnabas and Paul head to this big city. And for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples, this is so cool, were first called Christians at Antioch. 
See, it's an interesting detail. If you remember, do you remember what they were called prior to this? See, Antioch's not even a Jewish city or a Christian city, but they're called Christians there for the first time. They used to be called members of the way. And so when they began to be called um, Christians in Antioch, most theologians believe it was a derogatory term. Oh, you're one of those. You're a Christian, right? But they wore it as like this badge of honor, right? It, had, it carried with it a sense of pride for them, so that they didn't mind having that, that badge. And so Saul, and he begins now to use his Roman name, Paul, and Barnabas, they find themselves in this temple in Antioch. And here's what Luke says happens. After the reading from the law and the prophets, okay, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. And so after reading what you and I know as readings from the Old Testament, which would have outlined what we call the Old Covenant, the one given to Moses on Mount Sinai, with all of its laws and commands, then they say to Paul and Barnabas, they've likely heard about them in town preaching about this rabbi, Jesus, from Jerusalem. They go, do you have anything to add? Well, Luke writes that standing up, Paul motioned with his hands, a lot like me, that might be the only thing that Paul and I have in common, Motion with his hands and said, fellow Israelites, and you Gentiles who worship God. And those Gentiles who worship God had had the little surgery. Listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. See, he's going all the way back to Moses, right? And Passover and the plagues and let my people go. With mighty power, he led them out of that country, and for about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. Israel wanders for the 40 years. And he, over, he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, right, to bring the, this nation into the promised land, right, giving, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took 450 years. So he gives them their whole history, and he reminds them of the covenant that they're living under, the Mosaic Covenant. This conditional promise for a nation, not for a person. There was an Abrahamic covenant that was a promise to a person. This is the Mosaic covenant. It was a promise to the nation of Israel that if this nation obeyed the commands of the Lord, he would bless them. And if they did not, he would punish them. And he goes on and he tells them about how God had worked through their past. He, he, he reminds them of how the judges ruled. Then he reminds them of how the kings ruled. He even brings up King David. And then he says, this Jesus that you've heard of he was a descendant of that King David. And then he makes this bold, bold proclamation. He goes, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. He goes all the way back to Abraham, who was told, right, that a great nation would come through him and that that nation would be a blessing. And what is the message of Jesus that they're so insistent on? It's so interesting to me. It's always the same thing. Right? They're so insistent on what they were witnesses of. There's, they speak of how the ruling authorities in Jerusalem had mistaken Jesus, and they had crucified him. They didn't realize who he was. Here's what they said, though. He goes, but God, I want you to see if you sense any repetition here, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And they're now witnesses to our people. What are they witnesses of? God raised them from the dead. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors has been fulfilled for us, their children. How? By raising up Jesus. God raised him from the dead so that he'll never be subject to decay. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let the Holy One see decay. 
Now, when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Over and over and over again, the early message of the church was Jesus was dead, but now he's alive. We saw him. That's why we're here. In fact, Paul tells them, he's got to be greater than David, who you think is pretty great because David is buried and decayed, but Jesus is alive. It was a pretty simple message to those outside the city. Jesus must be who he said he is because God raised him from the dead and we can prove it. So he says, therefore, because God raised him from the dead, that's the trump card, right? Jesus is greater than enter anything here because nobody else has been raised from the dead. Therefore, um, it's, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Through him, not, not you, not being good, not the law and the prophets, not your temple sacrifices, not your best efforts, not your prayers, not your good deeds, not your kind acts, not your best intentions, through him and not because of you. Everyone... And not everyone who does something, not everybody who, 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 who achieves something, everyone who believes, not just Jews who assumed it as a birthright, not just the God-fearing Gentiles who had adopted all the Jewish ceremonies and laws, not just the circumcised, everyone who believes. And what can be forgiven? Every sin. There is no sin beyond the grace of God. You know, we talk about this a lot. If I went to Morristown, right, asked the guy on the street, I'm going to do this one day, and said, hey, man, tell me about your thoughts, your religious thoughts on what happens when you die. Most folks that at least are not agnostic or, 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 or atheistic, they have some kind of religious background, most of them will say, well, I think there's a heaven and I'm going to go there. And if you press them on it, well, why are you going to go there? Why do you think you'll go to heaven? What's the answer almost usually come back as? I'm a good person. Right? Okay, well, you know, are you really a good person? You know, you could press them on it, you could press them on it, and they'll start go, well, you know, I, I'm not perfect. So, okay, so what, so what makes you a good person? If you keep pushing on it, where eventually do they get to? I haven't killed anybody. Right? That's always where it gets to. I haven't killed anybody. But that's not what Paul says. Paul goes, hey, I got a message for you. Every person and every sin every person and every sin. This is Paul. This is the Pharisee guy. This is the guy that, that is, has been the best at keeping the law. This is the one that persecuted the church. This is Paul who participated in the martyring of Stephen. Suddenly he's got a completely different message. Everyone, every sin. And then here comes the gut punch. He says, it's a justification that you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Holy smokes. Holy smokes, justification is just this legal word. It's best understood as just as if I had never sinned. You stand, he goes, let me explain something to you guys. He goes, I don't want you to worry about the Mosaic law anymore. I want you to understand, because of belief in Jesus, every person, every sin, stands before God literally like they have never sinned. 
And he goes, look, that wasn't the case before. The, the old covenant with all of its rules and laws and ceremonies and sacrifices, it could never do that. Some of you know in Israel there were daily sacrifices for sin. And then there was the big day, the most celebrated day, the Day of Atonement. The book of the law and the prophets had, had, that, that they had just been hearing read, it had said that this Day of Atonement was to be a lasting ordinance. It was to be made once a year for all of the sins of Israel. On that day, once per year, the high priest would com was commanded to make an offering of two goats. One goat was sacrificed in order to make atonement for the sins of the people in the Israelite community. And, they and the priest would take the blood of the goat into the Holy of Holies. Once a year, the priest was allowed into the Holy of Holies where they believed God dwelt. And he went in there with the blood of the sacrificial lamb to, to atone for the sins of the people. And then the other goat, the other goat was the scapegoat, and that goat was sent off in the wilderness. Theoretically, the thought was that that goat was carrying the sins of the people away. It was the one time per year where the, the priest would go in and he stood there in the Holy of Holies as a mediator between God and the people. This is Paul saying to all of the people in the temple in Antioch, yeah, you know all that? It didn't work. Later on, it would be explained as being symbolic of, of, of the work Jesus did. The Lamb of God slain for every sin for everyone. But this was so hard for people to believe. I, and not hard to believe, it was offensive. It was just starkly offensive. It'd be like somebody t telling you, you know what, you know all the Christmas stuff you guys do? Forget it, it was useless. You know, you know what you think happened on Easter and how Jesus atoned for? Forget it. Meaningless now. And it's even worse and more offensive than that because these religious ceremonies were also mixed with their nationalism and their cultural heritage and pride. You can't get rid of that stuff. That's what makes us... Well, we'd go, that's what makes us Americans. They'd go, that's what makes us Jews. That's why we have a country. And Paul's going, yeah, it, it's useless. It doesn't work. And you know, you know he, here's how you would prove it. He's going, um, Abraham, dead. Moses, dead. Jesus, alive. Their stuff didn't work. Now, he knows how crazy and offensive this is. And he actually, so because he does, he reaches back into the books of the law and the prophets that had just been read, right? And he reaches into them because they honor and revere them, and he pulls forward for them a prophecy. Here's what he says. He goes, take care that what the prophets have said doesn't happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. That's how radical this new covenant of Jesus is. You wouldn't even have believed it if somebody had told you. Scoffers who wonder and perish because they can't put on the new clothes of a new covenant. And Luke writes that on hearing this good news. Now, could you imagine if you've been excluded from God forever and you hear this news? He writes that, that on hearing the good news, every sin for everybody who believes, right, when the Gentiles hear this, they're glad and they honor the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. But... On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord because it was good news. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what Paul was saying, and they heaped abuse on him. 
Old clothes are comfortable. Old clothes are hard to take off. But as you're going to see next week, it wasn't just the Jews in Antioch that struggled with the new clothes for a new covenant. Next week, when word gets back to Jerusalem, right, that Barnabas and Paul are letting everybody in. And not only are they letting everybody in, they're just like letting them convert to Judaism. They're not making them convert to Judaism. They're not making them follow any of the rules. They're not making them follow any of the laws. They're telling them, you don't have to get circumcised. Come follow Jesus. And so, and so you'll see next week, the bigwigs in the church, like, freak out. You can't do that. It was such a big deal. It was such a church explosion that Paul and Barnabas actually had to leave Antioch and go back to Jerusalem to debate what the message of the church was actually going to be. Was the message of the church going to be what you and I tend to think it is, which is, I can go to heaven because Jesus died for my sins, and I keep the, I'm a good person. And so I, I know the Ten Commandments, and so I do them, I'm good, and Jesus died for my sins. And so I have this mixing of those things. And, and so they go back and they go, okay, what, what is our message? Is that our message? Like, what, what do the people have to do? We're going to talk about that next week. The early church had a problem with this. They had a new covenant. They couldn't get rid of the old clothes. And the clothes, if they had kept them, were unattractive. I mean, circumcision has a way of minimizing a movement, right? But, but here's my point, and I'm going to wrap, wrap it up this way. You and I have the same problem as the, old, the early church. When it comes to the new covenant, we can often be modern-day scoffers at it. As much as we should love the new covenant, I love this, every sinner, every sin, every person, I love it. We like old clothes a lot. I mean, the church got it right. It took about a decade for them to figure this out, maybe 15 years. And then the church began to explode but it didn't take long for all of the old covenant stuff to start coming back, getting brought back into the movement of Jesus. And for Christians, the people of this new way, to be known more for the old covenant than the new covenant. And I fear that the church today is known more for the old covenant than it is the new covenant. The old covenant doesn't even apply to us. Somehow it's our reputation. Jesus knew how radical what he was doing was, and so he tried to explain it this way. He was being questioned one day on why his disciples weren't prioritizing the law to fast. They, they see Jesus and his disciples are eating, and it was a time of fasting, and, and John, the, John the Baptist's disciples are fasting, and all of the Pharisees are fasting. And so they come up to Jesus, they go, what are you doing? Your people aren't obeying the law, they're not fasting, right? And, and Jesus goes, look, he goes, when the bridegroom is here and the wedding is going on, you don't fast then. He goes, I, I'm right with them now. Why would they fast? They don't need to fast to draw nearer to God or to hear from God or to impress God. They'll never be any closer to God than they are right now. And then he said this. He goes, look, nobody sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, when the wine ferments, right, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. You pour a new covenant into a people that cl are clothed differently. 
Nobody creates a new body of believers, people of the way, Christians as they're first called in Antioch, and puts on old religious clothes. They don't fit anymore, they don't look good on them, they're offensive, and they can be dangerous. I'm going to show you what I mean. Here's kind of a summary of, of the old covenant, that, that the Mosaic covenant, as it was understood by, by the people of the day, right? In the old covenant, you had special people, you had a sacred place, you had a sacrificial system, you had saintly men, and you had spiritual laws that needed to be followed. That was the old covenant. Special people, right? It was, it was a covenant between God and Israel. It had moral laws, civil laws, ceremonial laws, and it was all of these laws, dietary laws, right, that made Israel so separate and distinct from every other nation on earth. And that's the way God wanted it to be. He wanted Israel to be different and separate. So when God blessed them, people would go, wow, their God in a land of, of gods everywhere, their God must be the God. They want, he wanted them to look different. I mean, there were laws even prohibiting you from going, not just outside of your group, but you couldn't touch other people. Remember, Peter couldn't eat in the house of Cornelius last week, let alone marry somebody from outside of the group. And those laws had a purpose then. They don't anymore. Those laws had a purpose then. They don't anymore. But people will keep trying to bring them back. God no longer favors one nation or one people. That was Peter's great earth-shattering discovery, right, when he sees the Holy Spirit fall on Gentiles. Remember what he said from last week? He goes, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but he accepts from every nation the one who fear him and does what's right. Every nation, everyone. Every person, everyone. It was a song that was popular years ago that we would do well to remember, especially in America right now. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. I mean, so many people grab onto old covenant promises that God made to Israel, and they apply them to our country. You can see it on social media all the time. God is going to do this because America is good. He's going to bless America because we follow God's laws, or he's going to curse America because we don't follow God's laws. That is the old covenant. Those promises weren't made to the United States of America. Those promises were made to Israel. That covenant has been fulfilled. Those promises don't apply. That is the old covenant. They had a purpose then. They don't now. A sacred place. In the Old Covenant, God's presence was contained in the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, in the New Covenant, right, it's different. In fact, this is one of the things that got Stephen martyred. It's one of the reasons Paul killed Stephen. Here's what Stephen said that got him stoned. He said, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. This was when God was in the tabernacle as the, as the Jews traveled those 40 years. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. And it was Solomon who built a temple in the promised land for him. However, here's what got Stephen in trouble. The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. Well, if God has left the building, well, then where does God reside? Well, Paul would figure it out later. Here's what he told the church in Corinth. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? 
Now, here's something that we have to embrace. In the new covenant, there are not sacred places. There is not one place that's more sacred than another place. In fact, this morning, if you look at the person to the left of you and the right of you, the person sitting to the left or right of you is more sacred than any place, any piece of land, any church that you're ever going to go to. The person right next to you. That annoying person that's sitting on the plane next to you, clipping his toenails with his shoe off as you're on your way to, the, to, the, to Israel to see all of the sights, he's more sacred than the birthplace of Jesus. You could have saved your money. I always struggle with this stuff. Jesus said, I, I, I'm going to build to Peter, I'm going, you're going to help me build my church. That word in the Greek was the word ecclesia. It meant gathering. But the old covenant mixed its way back into the church. Again, a few hundred years after they first got it. And so, so William Tyndale, when he translated this Bible, the Bible into English, he translated as gathering and took out the word church. Do you know what they did to William Tyndale for, for moving it to gathering? They burned him alive. No, 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 no. It's not a gathering. It's a church. A church is a place. This way we can control it. This way we, they have to come because God's here. They can't experience them out there. You've got to come here. You know what you're sitting in this morning? A building. Like just a building. Like literally. Just a building. It's not sacred. I mean, I like it. It has memories for me here. You're not, it's not sacred. You are. Which, by the way, should impact how you treat yourself. And it should impact how you treat others. Imagine if people in the church understood the new covenant and they started treating each other the way that we treat what we think is sacred. Imagine what that would do to the world. If we, got, if we understood what it is we say we believe. In the old covenant, you had a sacrificial system, right? Your sins and transgressions were made right. You were justified through the daily and then the annual sacrifices to God. In the new covenant... Well, the writer to the, to, to the Hebrews, and, and it was hard for the Hebrew people to understand this. Here's how he tried to explain it to him. He goes, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. Though they were offered in accordance with the law, he sets aside the first covenant to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Breaking news, God is not interested in your sacrifices. You cannot impress God. In fact, he's not looking for you to impress him. You can't get right with God. You cannot improve your status by giving more money, by going on more missions trips, by coming to church more often. I mean, I know as a preacher I shouldn't tell you this, right? And I will tell you that this is why most preachers aren't going to tell you this. I'm not holding myself up. I'm just saying that... Oh, over the centuries, the church has hidden this little fact. In fact, the new covenant, since there's a, a new law, right, and it's, it's people where the Spirit of God resides, here's what Jesus says. He goes, look, if, you have an, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. 
Jesus is going on. No, 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 you don't get it. I'm not interested in this. Go get right. I'll wait. Jesus is saying God will wait. Go make it right with somebody else. I mean, we have such old covenant thinking when it comes to this. Like, you know, have you ever thought, well, you know, I did something wrong. I've sinned. I've hurt another person. And so I wonder what I can do to get God to forgive me. Right? But you think there's some formula or way that you could go about getting God to forgive you for sinning against another person when you have no interest to go and make it right with the other person. There's not. That's old covenant thinking, but you've brought it into this life. It's not. In the old covenant, you had saintly men. They were the priests, the mediators between man and God. The first one was Aaron, who was the brother of Moses. And the way it was kind of put on the people was that a mere, impure, uneducated, sinful man off the streets, he has no access to God. If he wants access to God, his access is granted through the priest. In the new covenant, again, here's what the writer to the Hebrews tried to explain. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Who is the mediator for you in the new covenant? Is there a priest? Do you need a priest to mediate between you and God? No. Jesus mediates between you and God. There is no need for you to go to the priest. Now, I'm not saying that talking to somebody that, that knows God intimately, knows the scriptures well, he wouldn't be good for counseling or direction or understanding. But please understand this. You have as much access to God as the Pope or Billy Graham does. That's the truth. It sounds blasphemous, but it's the truth. Paul put it this way to Timothy, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Old covenant thinking is, one's funny, uh, my my brother-in-law, who's one of my best friends, he comes from a different religious background, Christian religious background, and when I became a pastor, he literally, and his family, they looked at my mother and they said, well, now you're going to heaven because your son is like a priest, and so now you're in, right? That's old covenant thinking. And we laugh at that, but here's, here's where we get confused. How many of you, when, when, when you really are, are worried about something, come to me and go, John, I need you to pray for this? And many of you have said to me, well, I know God will listen to you. It's old covenant thinking. God will listen to me no more or less than he will listen to you. You have the exact same access that I have to God. Now, you know, people that have something to gain out of the system would like you to think that they have more access to God. But they don't. And finally, there's this. Under the old covenant, you were thought to be justified by keeping the law, all 600 plus of them. You and I bring that same old covenant thinking to Christianity all the time. I believe in Jesus, and I obey the commandments. But here's the deal. And I didn't say this, okay? Jesus did, so take it up with him. He goes, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The old covenant is fulfilled. It had a time and a place and a purpose. But unless you're Jewish, it was never even your covenant to begin with. You were never meant to relate to God through the law. And Jesus isn't dismissing the old covenant. He's not saying it's pointless. He's saying it's fulfilled. It is over. There is a new covenant, and it has replaced the old covenant. And it is different than the old covenant, and you can't mix them. Now, there, there is a new command with the new covenant. 
Jesus said this, a new command I give you, love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another. In fact, a hammer at home, when he was asked what the greatest commandment is, what did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then here's what would have driven him nuts. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I mean, do you see what the new covenant is doing? It is very different. Love replaces law-keeping. Self-sacrifice replaces animal sacrifice. The vertical, your relationship with God and how you stand with God, is now defined, right, and measured by the horizontal. How are you doing with other people? God says, I'm fine. You're fine with me. We have a new covenant. It should be clothed in new ways. But, and depending on your faith background, all of us to one degree or another, we hang on to that old one. I mean, think about it, right? What you fear and what you define as, as sin and what you define as God condemning, so much of it is rooted in the old covenant and not the new. And as a result, when we clothe ourselves in these unattractive clothes, the early church dropped them. It took them about 10 or 15 years, but when the early church, you'll see next week, well, what, is there any laws? Yeah, there are. Uh, it's crazy. The, the, that's for next week, right? But, but the, the early church put on new clothes, and it exploded because the story of Jesus was really, really, really good news. And then something happened. Spiritual people had something to lose, and so they started saying, well, you know, church, and they added it all back in. I heard somebody this week, I'll close with this. He asked good questions. He said, let me give you examples of how we fall into old covenant thinking. Have you ever asked, how close to sin can I get? Right, like John, this is a dating question that, that you hear all the time. You know, first base, second base. Like, how close can I get? Right, where is the line for sin? See, that's old covenant thinking. What that is, is I want to see how close I can get to sin, not how close I can get to God. It's old covenant thinking. Have you ever felt more guilty about missing church or, or, or not missing your quiet time or, or not going on a missions trip or, or maybe not giving at the level you're, you're called to give in the church? Have you ever felt more guilty about that than the way you treat somebody at work? It's old covenant thinking, Right? My brother-in-law comes from uh, his mother. My brother-in-law is the one that reached me for Christ, but his mother comes from a, a different Christian background. And uh, he, has, he has four kids, and his mother, every time his mother would uh, watch the kids for them, she would take them down to her church to get, to get christened. Because in her religious model, if these kids aren't christened, they're going to hell. It's old, old covenant thinking. Somebody convinced her that, oh, you have to do this act to save this child. And of course, she loves her grandchildren, and so she was doing it. It's old, it's old covenant thinking. We, bring, we, do, we do that stuff all the time, right? Have you ever failed morally, right? Maybe, I, maybe, you, maybe you stole uh, at work. Maybe you had an affair. I don't know what it is, right? You can come up with your own ethic right now. Whenever you would say you failed morally, you know that God's not happy that you did this, right? Have you worried more about what God was going to do to you than what you did to others? It's old covenant thinking. You see how we're so steeped in it? Do you think there's a ritual that makes you right with God and removes your responsibility to make restitution to the person you sinned against? Old covenant thinking. Do other people's sins elicit feelings of superiority in you? Oh, well, look at them. 
my, you know, the Republicans, the Democrats. You can go on and on, right? You th throw it out there, but oh, you know, but I'm, I'm different. I mean, sin should break your heart. It shouldn't, 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 shouldn't fluff up your pride. That's the Pharisee in us, right? Does your theology get in the way of you loving people? Everybody, no matter what they believe. I mean, this is in all of us, right? But if, the magic, if you want to understand why the church is dying, it's because we've become messengers of the wrong covenant. I mean, just imagine it, right? If, if, if the church could let it all go and put on the new clothes of the new covenant, God is fine with me. And, it, and if we would explain the good news right, that Jesus was dead and now he's alive and there's a lot of really good reasons to believe it and I could show you a lot of proof. And if it's true, we should probably listen to what he said. And he died for you and he's for you. Isn't that good news? Wouldn't people respond to that again? No sin could put you outside of his love. Grace has no measure. That's the gospel. That's why the church exploded. Friends, we got one, one week left in this series. If you want to know why the church exploded, it's because the church took off the old clothes and realized we have a different message. We have a message of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified for sinners. He was dead and buried and rose again. And every sinner from every nation, no matter what sin, can be reconciled to God through faith. Don't be a scoffer and don't miss it. Let's stand and close and worship.